Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. This podcast is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest for today's episode is Professor Volodymyr Dubovik, who is the director of the Center for International Studies at the Menchnikov National University in Odessa, Ukraine. Welcome, Professor. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today on Kudenitsia. My pleasure. To start off with, it would be great if you can give our audience some information about your educational and professional background. Sure. I've been uh, raised, born and raised in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, 53 years ago, 1970, and uh, uh, went to high school there, went to university. I got my degree in history, um, my master's degree in history, and then I switched to political science and international relations. So I've been doing international relations now and foreign policy analysis, teaching and research for the last 30 years or so. Um, I'm teaching Ukraine's foreign policy and uh, U.S. foreign policy courses. Uh, I've been doing this for a while, and also I happen to direct work of a small think tank uh, research body that we have um, in my university called Center for International Studies. So I've been to U.S. on a number of occasions. I've been on Fulbright twice. I've been on various other fellowships as well. So basically coming uh, to U.S. every year, sometimes several times a year for the last 25, 26 years or so. Uh, the last uh, academic year, I was a visiting professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, and also I held a, a bunch of uh, non-resident fellowships with some American institutions, including uh, Cannon Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and also George Washington University uh, last year. And currently I'm also a non-resident fellow, uh, senior fellow, for the Center of European and Policy Analysis, also based in Washington, D.C. So, Professor, how and why did you come to focus on U.S. foreign policy and U.S.-Ukraine relations? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I was always interested in this. Uh, among factors that uh, shaped up my mind uh, was the fact that the head of a department where I was specialized, even when I was a student, was a late professor, uh, Semyon Apatov, who was one of the founders of the study of U.S. foreign policy in the former Soviet Union. Uh, so he originated a group of scholars who actually were involved in studying U.S. foreign policy, U.S. Uh, foreign policy thoughts and ideas, discussions among American scholars about U.S. foreign policy. So I got, uh, you know, excited about it and I joined the group. So ever since that time, I've been uh, uh, doing my research on U.S. foreign policy. I teach history, I teach present day of U.S. foreign policy. In broader, I'm interested in America as a country, as a phenomenon, cultural phenomenon. So they, I am what they call in Ukraine an Americanist, meaning that uh, I am to go guy often to, to to comment on developments in U.S., including some complicated developments some, sometimes in uh, domestic politics as well. So at this time, what do you think are the major challenges in U.S.-Ukraine relations and, and how can they be overcome? Well, I mean, uh, the challenge is obvious. Uh, Ukraine is uh, facing this uh, ongoing Russian aggression, massive Russian war against Ukraine. So everything is, uh, you know, subdued 
and everything is uh, to the cause of fighting the war and winning the war. And uh, therefore, U.S. plays a major role. And of course, uh, the major problem is that there is a growing sentiment in the United States among the public and also some parts of political elites that maybe this this time to throw Ukraine under the bus, uh, cut it over the leash, maybe stop entirely assistance to Ukraine or somehow reframe it or, you know, just cut it, reduce it or something like that. That's unfortunate because I believe that uh, you know, Ukraine's fight against Russia is within American interests, and uh, it is with American interests uh, uh, to support Ukraine. Uh, there is still a very strong argument, I think, to be made in Russia now for this support. So, but unfortunately, some people are playing, you know, political games in the United States, and unfortunately, some people are being, um, you know, uh, subjected and exposed to certain stereotypes and cliches. Many of them are not uh, having any ground in the real life about Ukraine, about Ukrainian leadership and uh, that creates a problem but i hope that still the the most of the american public and the more uh, kind of sober-minded part of political elite would continue to support ukraine in the coming months and years and are ukrainians concerned about the changing attitudes in the u.s toward providing additional military and humanitarian aid and absolutely do you have any particular insight as to why you think this is happening yeah, we are concerned, of course, because the U.S. is a big giver, uh, is a big sponsor and donor, gives uh, assistance to the Ukrainian budget and government to stay afloat, but also gives weapons, uh, you know, a lot of weapons already. Uh, over the last year and a half, it's been over $100 billion uh, committed to assisting Ukraine. So that's not small money. Uh, and we know, of course, that the U.S. Uh, uh, does more than that. U.S. also consolidates and uh, kind of uh, leads the coalition of countries supporting Ukraine, uh, which just met yesterday, actually, another time in Brussels. Uh, and Zelensky was there, Ukrainian president. The formal name is Ukraine uh, Defense Contact Group. And there will be no such group, uh, which has something like 50 countries in it without United States. So this case of Russian war against Ukraine provides for a very fruitful uh, case uh, of analysis of how American leadership is not only needed, but it's also possible because a lot of people were wondering, even a few years ago, uh, does the war need American leadership? Uh, and even, in, even even is it possible? You know, like can U.S. do it or U.S. moment is over? Now we see that with this war actually very much depends on U.S. And uh, that's why we worry uh, about the cutting of support interim elections, uh, the, the 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 midterm rather elections, uh, uh, you know, last year. But now, of course even more so with the change of the leadership of the House of Representatives, and not to mention the, the year of elections, which is about a year from now, uh, where, Amer- where Ukrainians worry really very much yeah, that, uh, you know, there'll be changes in American policy towards Ukraine, while the war most probably will still be raging. What do you think can be done by the government of Ukraine and the Ukrainian-American diaspora to have a positive impact on American attitudes towards providing additional military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine? Well, I think uh, there is a whole bunch of arguments to be made about this. Uh, uh, I think that uh, we can un- try to explain uh, to our American counterparts uh, that uh, uh, supporting Ukraine is the right thing to do. I mean, it's morally, morally right because what Russia is doing is repugnant. It's complete moral outrage, what you're seeing about destruction and war crimes and everything, and hitting civilians and killing civilians uh, in scores 
that's something which is just wrong on moral level. On a level of international law, that's a major affront to any international order or international law, which uh, U.S. have been a, a safeguard, a guardian, really, for a number of decades. Uh, on American interests, it's even more so. I mean, America is defending Ukraine because Ukraine is a democracy. It proved it so on so many occasions, even during this times so of massive aggression, vis-a-vis authoritarian Russia, which is kind of moving maybe even to totalitarian state. And finally, American interests are involved here. If Ukraine, God forbid, loses its war, there will be a major detriment, a major blowback against American interests, American power, American influence in the war, in the world. Uh, 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 and that would be unfortunate uh, because the people would just uh, uh, tend to believe that uh, U.S. might support you one day and then they will turn their back on you. That's an assumption many people got from American withdrawing from Afghanistan. But if America somehow cuts Ukraine loose and stops supporting Ukraine during this major war, there will be major detriment to American interests uh, and uh, U.S. allies uh, in Europe, including specifically in Central Eastern Europe. You know, Russia will be emboldened and other dictators too. Uh, Russia might easily attack a NATO country. And then in that case, of course, as an outgoing uh, chairman of Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mr. Milley, General Milley, just said the other day, uh, if you stop paying what you pay now to support Ukraine, in a couple of years from now, you would need to double the budget because you would need to pay more, and also with American lives, the lives of American soldiers. Professor, you're currently a visiting scholar at the Tufts University Fletcher Russia and Eurasia program in Massachusetts. Would you comment on your experiences there and attitudes you found about Americans and not the Ukrainian-American diaspora, but Americans. What are their attitudes about Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, mostly it's very a lot of sympathy. And, uh, you know, no, normally when people would find, would listen to my accent and they would uh, like to find out where I'm from and I'll say from Ukraine, there's a lot of uh, compassion and sympathy and uh, messages of support. We stand with you and things like that. Uh, you know, that's what I mostly get uh, uh, wherever I go. And I travel a lot, not just in... Uh, uh, Tufts area or, you know, greater Boston, but I traveled uh, last academic year to a number of places in the United States, uh, including places like West Virginia, for instance, or Wisconsin, or, or uh, state of Washington, some others. So basically across the country in the South as well, I've been to Atlanta, a bunch of colleges there in Atlanta area, South Carolina as well. And everywhere people basically approach me and say, we're with you. You know, we, we, we just we just can't uh, imagine uh, not being on Ukrainian side. So I've been blessed, I think, in the sense of not meeting people who are the openly, aggressively pushing this idea that Ukraine does not deserve American support. But uh, I understand they are out there, you know, so we need to make our case made. Uh, if only they can listen, because unfortunately, sometimes I think many of those people have already been exposed to these cliches and stereotypes, and uh, they can't change their position. They entrenched in this view, exposed by the leaders of that uh, fragment, uh, political fragment in the United States, uh, you know, claiming that there is nothing for U.S. to do uh, in helping Ukraine, that it does not match American interests. Let's turn away from U.S.-Ukraine relations for the moment. I know that one of your other areas of interest is Black Sea regional security. Do you think Ukraine is making any headway to counteract Russia's destructive policies in the Black Sea region? Absolutely. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a success story. I mean, uh, look, going into this massive war against Ukraine, Russia had 
or hoped for the total domination of the Black Sea. That's not what is happening. I mean, of course, they've been able to uh, implement uh, and enforce their uh, blockade of the Ukrainian sea coast uh, for a number of months last year in 2022, between February and July. And then there was a grain deal or grain initiative that Russia signed. Then they withdrawn recently, uh, you know, in July this year, 23, from grain initiative. But uh, that didn't prevent Ukraine from continuing the trade. You know, we're still trading. We're trading across the river, Danube. We're also now uh, continuing our trade from uh, ports of Odessa, Chernomorsk, and Pivdeni, uh, you know, across the territorial waters of Romania and Bulgaria into Turkey. And Russia cannot do anything about it. Uh, frankly, I mean, they've been trying to lay the mines. Uh, just the other day, uh, a Turkish vessel in Romanian waters actually hit the mine. Luckily, no one uh, was injured. But that's not a massive uh, thing that they do because they're actually hiding away from, from Ukrainian troops. Ever since uh, April 22, when uh, we drowned their flagship, the cruiser Moskva or Moscow, they, so since they're getting wrong for them, you know, we're now hitting them with aerial drones, naval drones, all sorts of missiles. Uh, uh, in, even in Sevastopol. So to the extent that a few days ago, they actually removed ma- major naval assets from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk, away from Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian coast. So it's a clear example of how Ukraine actually working with many other allies and partners in the region, including some NATO countries, uh, which I mentioned, Austria, Bulgaria, Romania, NATO. You know, we can do a lot, actually, even though Ukraine doesn't really have a navy to, to speak of. But you can actually fight back in some kind of asymmetric way. Uh, and all of these Russian ships are suddenly have no meaning for them, except that they're sitting ducks for Ukrainian missiles. Yeah, I think I heard some pundits call it Ukraine's Navy a mosquito Navy. Yes. Yes, that was an idea because you can't really build many big ships, large ships quickly, and they're very expensive. So how can you do it? So the idea was that Ukraine would have a small boats kind of ships, uh, vessels, uh, mosquito fleet. But now we are actually doing that. But at the same time, we are showing the, that we have a, proje- you know, the the pro- force projection uh, with with drones uh, and air force and missiles in particular. Some of them are Ukraine made, like Neptunes, and some of them are provided by our allies. Uh, you know, including harpoons actually produced in the U.S., but also scalps and storm shadows produced by the United Kingdom. And we're also hoping that uh, the Biden administration would actually, at some point, would eventually provide us with attacks, the long-range uh, uh, missiles that we can use actually to hit targets in Crimea, in, in Ukrainian or currently Russia-occupied Crimea, but also to cut the land corridor between Donbass and Crimea, which would be a big deal for Ukrainian uh, ongoing offenses there. Professor, we're just about out of time, but I did want to ask you one more question. How can the Ukrainian government develop allies among the countries of the global south? Well, it's hard. Uh, We've we've discovered the hard way that they're not necessarily on our side always, or even on the side of our Western allies. Uh, On on the contrary, actually, the fact that uh, we've been supported by countries like Great Britain, France, and the U.S. have been a, a factor pushing some of the countries, say, in Africa, uh, you know, to not support Ukraine and actually think that we in Ukraine are waging this imperial war on behalf of uh, great Western imperial powers against Russia. And that uh, reflects their stereotype, the stereotype of their history, what's rooted in their history, they've been colonized by those powers at some point of time, primarily France and Britain, obviously, 
And also, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, cliche and stereotypes in the air in the Soviet times uh, that Moscow stands uh, against uh, the colonialism of the Western powers. Uh, so some of the elites in this uh, country is actually are therefore pro-Moscow. But we've been trying to change uh, this uh, attitude and this sentiment, this narrative, fighting it back. Uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Kuleba has been to Africa several times. Actually, by the way, Secretary of State Blinken has been there also several times since February last year. So everyone is now understanding that the so-called Global South, which is, of course, not a perfect definition to how to define this uh, big grouping of countries in various continents, they need to be listened and they need to be talked to and they need to be explained, uh, like, what's going on. The Russian blockade, by the way, of the of the uh, agricultural products uh, being brought out of Ukraine to the world markets has played a role. Uh, and uh, when a bunch of uh, African presidents, uh, African countries' presidents came to Moscow, they were really disappointed with Putin, especially when Putin, you know, in a very colonial, imperialistic way said, oh, I'm going to give you some grain for free. And, and these people said, no, we don't need it for free. We actually want to buy it <laughs> for the market price and we can do it. But you're preventing <laughs> from, from this grain from Ukraine coming to the world markets. So I think uh, there is some future for turning the global south around in this issue. Uh, it just takes time, gonna take time. It's not, it's not gonna be able, we're not gonna be able to do it over, overnight. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsia. Thank you for having me, Michael. I have been speaking with Professor Volodymyr Dubovic, who is director for the Center for International Studies at Mechnikov National University in Odessa, Ukraine. And this episode of Kanonitsa has been produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. I'm Mike Burek, the host and producer of Kanonitsa. Until next time, that's all for now.